Well, hey, uh, good morning, church, and welcome in again, wherever you are and however you're tuning in. I just want to say that I'm glad that you're a part of our worship service this morning. And hey, it's an exciting week because uh, VBS this week uh, kicks off. It's online, starts tomorrow, and so I hope that you and your kids or your friends' kids will, will join us. Uh, Pastor Lee and the team have been working uh, really hard to get that up and running, and I know it's going to be different than last year or normal years, but it's still going to be special, so I hope that you'll uh, be a part of that, um, and we'll see you there online. Uh, also, today is the last Sunday in our Learning to Pray series, so we've been spending some time uh, over the summer just taking a psalm from the Old Testament each week and, and digging into it and seeing what it can teach us about how to pray and engage with God. And so this is the last week of that series, and the next couple weeks we'll be doing a couple different sermons and standalone messages before we uh, kick off our fall sermon series in the book of Second Timothy. So uh, it's going to be good to get back into a book and just kind of walk through it, which is more, again, normal for life here at FBC, just walk little by little through a book of the Bible. So we'll be in Second Timothy uh, in just a couple of weeks. We'll be starting that. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's the perfect book uh, for this time and season. And so uh, you'll be hearing more about that coming up. But today, uh, Psalm chapter 12. Uh, would you turn with me there and also join me in a brief word of prayer? Father, thank you for the gift of uh, this morning and the gift of your word that you invite us to draw near to you and uh, you've made it possible for us to know you and understand who you are and you've revealed yourself in your word. So God, we pray for your help. Holy Spirit, would you teach us, open our eyes to see, uh, help us understand what we read and apply it to our lives and to our hearts. God, would you do your work in us uh, today? We love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, pastor and author Tim Keller once wrote, secular Western culture is the worst culture in history at helping people deal with suffering. Again, he said, secular Western culture is the worst culture in history at dealing or helping people deal with suffering. That's a pretty big claim. And he goes on, he says, life for our ancestors was filled with far more suffering than ours is. And yet we have innumerable diaries, journals, and historical documents that reveal how they took hardship and grief in far better stride than we do. He goes on to argue that our Western culture provides virtually no tools, virtually no preparation for people to deal with the harsh realities of life. Well, why? He says because our culture is built on pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain and finding happiness and living in the moment. And all of those things are undone or interrupted when tragedy strikes. Plus, people believe in the goodness of the human heart and that people are mostly good. And so we often are surprised or confused when we see people be selfish and, and wicked and harm others out in the world. And so pain or difficulty 
just gets in the way of life and what life is supposed to be, and it's not seen as or connected to any bigger picture. So we're ill-equipped to handle our pain or the dark reality of the world at large. And you know, in ways, that reality has seeped into the life of the church, where we come to church and often we want positive, upbeat messages, truths and things that are uplifting. We don't want to always go into the harsh, difficult realities of sin or the world. And it's almost as if we want to just, as quickly as possible, move past difficult emotions or pain. But we need to see, and I want us to see, that Scripture actually gives us incredible resources for dealing with pain and dealing with and processing the reality of a broken world. And one of those resources is lament. So lament is where you express grief. Lament is where you express sorrow, either outwardly or inwardly. We cry out, we mourn, uh, we express our suffering and the state of the world. And Psalm 12 is a psalm of lament, the text we're looking at this morning. It has much to teach us about how to suffer and lament and process pain and evil in the world. Let's look at again how it starts, Psalm 12, verse 1. It says, Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. May the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Those who say, by our tongues we will prevail, our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? Psalm 12 is a psalm of David, and you could probably paraphrase the opening verse like this. Help, Lord, because everything has gone to garbage. To lament, everything's falling apart as if he looks up at his present circumstances and says what? No one is godly, no one is faithful anymore, no one loyal to the Lord is left, and in their place, what do we have instead? Verse 2. Everyone lies to their neighbor. There's deception and corruption everywhere I look. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances under which David wrote this psalm. Perhaps it was when he was on the run and King Saul was trying to kill him. Perhaps it was later in David's life when he was king. Honestly, it's hard to know the specific timing of Psalm 12, when it was written, but the general idea, the feeling is clear. There is a a decay of honesty and goodness in the land. And so you notice his situation is dark, not necessarily because of a lack of money or resources, like he's fallen on hard times in that way, or there's an approaching enemy army that's going to kill him and his people, or necessarily some uh, personal misfortune that he's trying to navigate. His heart is heavy. And the circumstances are dark because the land is without godly, honest, loyal people. So he's lamenting the state of his nation, the state of the world. David, we know, is familiar with battle 
and combat. But here, this is a different kind of battle. It's a fight against lies, a fight against deception in the world, a fight against arrogant leaders and peers. This is a a psalm of lament that that could be repeated by the community. It's kind of categorized as a a community lament. Uh, So the community, the people of God could recite this and read this whenever those in authority, those in power lie and deceive. You notice it says in verse 2 that these people flatter with their lips. Or literally the the Hebrew says that their, their talk is smooth. So what they say sounds good and goes down easy and manipulates those who hear it. And perhaps that reality is more prevalent for some of us because some of us would outright lie and deceive other people. Uh, But many of us would say, no, we're not going to do that, but I'll sort of, I'll fudge the truth. You know, I'll leave out some key details. I'll smooth over certain parts of the story so that, that I look better. It's kind of what this psalm is, is getting at here. And verse 2 ends and says what? They have deception in their hearts. These people that David sees are, are more literally, it's actually double-hearted, or the Hebrew says they have a heart and a heart. Heart and heart. So they're, they're double-hearted. They're uh, conflicted within. They say one thing, but they really are doing another And David asks God in verse 3 to silence those who flatter and boast. And verse 4 shows these people who claim to be in charge and unassailable. Who is Lord over us? They're proud. They're boastful. They want to do whatever they want to do. And so David looks up at the reality of all this and, and just feels completely alone. He's not sure who can I trust? Who do I know is on the side of truth and righteousness? Perhaps you felt the same way. Who do I trust? So many conflicting news articles and stories out there in the world. And so there's a few connections I think we can take from David's situation in this psalm and and look at our own lives today. And the first is simply this. Let's uh, recognize what we see on the surface of the text, that, that David has a concern for truth. You see that theme throughout these first few verses, truth versus lies. There's this contrast between what is true and and those who want to deceive. So David's concerned about truth. And that's significant because sometimes people will look at the Christian faith and say, well, that's uh, pretty much just about your feelings or about a faith and some belief that you have, sure, but it's not really about facts or historical accuracy or what is actually true. So if you want to believe it, sure, that's fine, but don't claim that it's true for everyone, right, will say, hey, what's true for you? This is kind of our cultural climate. What's true for you? Great, true for you, but not necessarily true for me, so find your own truth. But you notice David doesn't use that language, and actually the Bible throughout doesn't talk about things in that light. Psalm 12 here and the rest of the Bible really is concerned with capital T truth, right? Objective truth truth claims, what is true for all. And so we want our society, our land to be marked by honesty and integrity and truth. Not lies, not deception, not just good feelings, but what is actually true and real about the world. We want to see people that stand up for for what is right, even if those in power, even if uh, the boastful, uh, powerful people of the day would say otherwise. 
So David has a concern for truth, and, and we should too. And you notice that David notices people around him, and instead of caring about truth, they what? They, they lie and deceive and boast and flatter. And you notice in the text, he identifies where the problem lies. It's, it's below the surface. Beneath the lies and the flattering lips and the boastful tongues he speaks of in verses 2 through 4, he says there's what? There's a deceptive heart. Again, a, a double heart that is not set on truth or righteousness. And we aren't really given the reason why these people David sees are deceiving others or lying, but clearly verse 5 shows us it's at the expense of the poor. Needy people, vulnerable people are somehow being taken advantage of. And so those in power, those who are lying, are, are selfish, are seeking to pursue their own gain at the expense of other people. And this is a heart issue. There's something that's gone wrong in the hearts of men and women. And you see this idea throughout the Bible. The problem at the root of all these other problems is a human heart that is sinful, that is deceptive, and crooked. It's an uncomfortable thing for us to think about today, that there's something wrong within us, but it's true. Jesus speaks about this in Mark chapter 7. We reference this text a number of times. Jesus says, hey, the problem that you need to worry about, it's not out there that you're going to be unclean or defiled by something you brush up against out there. The problem is what comes up out of your heart. That's where sin and evil and idolatry and all kinds of issues flow from, from the human heart. And so the change that is needed in your life and in the world is not just external change, a new set of rules, a new set of behaviors. Yes, that's part of it, but really at a deeper level, we need a change and transformation within, a renewed, transformed heart that then will, will lead to life and righteousness that only comes through Jesus. And so, friends, we need an accurate diagnosis here first in order to be healed. Right? You don't go to the doctor to have your self-esteem boosted. You go to the doctor for an accurate diagnosis. You go to the doctor to hear the truth about what's gone wrong and then what you need to do to fix it. Author Dallas Willard, a Christian author, put it this way. He said, we're all in serious trouble. That must be our starting point. So self-esteem in such a situation will only breed self-deception and frustration, as is now increasingly recognized, by the way. So denial, usually in some form of rationalization, rationalization is the primary device that humans use to deal with their own wrongness. So he says, we all need to recognize that we have a problem. We don't just need to puff ourselves up or, or deny the issue of our own hearts. Instead, we need to recognize the reality of sin in the human heart. I know that we want to believe that people are mostly good, but when we buy into that philosophy, it really makes it hard to explain or deal with the lies and deception and evil that we see in the world. 
In that sense, Willard goes on to explain, he says, we are like farmers who diligently plant crops but cannot admit the existence of weeds and insects and can only think to pour on more fertilizer. He says, when we deny the reality of sin or the brokenness of the human heart, we're like farmers who plant crops and all these problems keep coming, but we can't actually deal with the weeds and insects because we don't admit that they're there. So David sees this in Psalm 12. He knows the issue isn't just something on the surface, a couple lies, some deception here and there, but a deceptive heart, a boastful heart, a proud heart and spirit that has run rampant in society away from God. And you notice that for David, he sees this everywhere. Look at verse 1 again. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Now, again, perhaps this is a bit of hyperbole. Perhaps he's exaggerating, but he's clearly struggling to find people who are faithful to the Lord anywhere. Similarly, for us today as followers of Jesus, it can be lonely. It can be difficult to look around at our culture and see people in the public square, in leadership that that accurately represent Jesus. And so it can make you feel like quite an outcast to follow Jesus today. Actually, one of my favorite quotes about being a Christian uh, comes from pastor and author Scott Sauls. And I've shared this quote online before, so maybe you've seen it. But he says this, he says, I am too conservative for liberals. And too liberal for conservatives, says every Christian following the whole Jesus. Say that again. I am too conservative for liberals and too liberal for conservatives, says every Christian following the whole Jesus. Now, I know the labels liberal and conservative may not always be the most accurate or helpful descriptors, but I think you get the point. What's his point? Followers of Jesus are not going to feel at home today in our polarized culture. Followers of Jesus are not going to feel at home in the world of left-wing politics. Can't fully sign on to some progressive social agenda. And in the same way, followers of Jesus are not going to feel at home in the world of right-wing politics. And we cannot fully sign on to their agenda and platform. Friends, I don't see how the leaders, policies, or posture of either side, of either major political party today represent Jesus. I'm deeply troubled by both. And this is important to remember in in election, in an election year. As we look forward to November, I grieve, I have a heavy heart and really sense that we have no good options. No good options. That says something about the state of our world. And so, I look around and I don't feel at home anywhere really in our polarized culture. It's fun because as you follow Jesus, 
and try and walk the middle. There, there are times where you're going to, uh, again, sound too liberal for conservatives, and there are times where you're going to sound too conservative for liberals. And so you walk that line, and you get to take shots from both sides. It's really, it's really fun. Would you join me on that journey? So David looks around, and he says, I don't see loyalty, honesty, integrity. I don't see people loving Jesus anywhere on either side. So, so what do we do then? Friends, if our culture reflects David's situation in Psalm 12, and we see just things spiraling, spiraling all around us, we find ourselves with decay in all directions, what do we do? Again, look again at Psalm 12. How does he start? Verse 1, help, Lord. No one's faithful anymore. What do we do? We lament. Help. Lord, that's honestly probably my most frequent prayer. A simple prayer. Lord, help. Lord, this situation is overwhelming. Lord, my heart is heavy. Lord, I don't know how to respond properly. Help. God, I can't fight this battle alone. God, you have to handle this. God, I'm not going to take things into my own hands and meet evil with evil. So Lord, I come to you and I cry out to you and I trust in you. And so I'm going to do what I can to address the situation. I'm going to work for justice. I'm going to speak out about issues in our world. I'm going to work for, for peace. I'm going to be a peacemaker. I want to share the gospel. I want to do what I can, but also acknowledge that there's so much that is out of my control. So God, I come to you and say, help. God, would you intervene? And so, friends, we're talking about learning to pray, right? That's what the summer's been about, using the Psalms to teach us to pray. And we've talked about prayer as what? Enjoying God's presence. We've talked about prayer as confessing our sins. We've talked about prayers of praise and celebrating who God is. We've talked about prayers for God's protection. And now we're talking about prayers of lament, where we pause long enough to reflect on the brokenness in our world. And with heavy hearts, we cry out to God and ask him to intervene. God, would you act? God, would you bring light and truth and change? I think it's healthy to create space in our prayer lives where we uh, read certain news articles, we read about just certain heavy realities in our world, and, and rather than brushing past it really quickly, we sit with it and say, Lord, The psalm includes how God responds to these prayers. Look at verse 5. It says, Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. So after this dark, desperate situation in verses 1 through 4, we see in verse 5, God says, I will protect them. I will arise. And then verse 7 and 8, I will keep them safe. I will protect my people and those in need. It's talking about the poor and, and the needy. You notice the lies and the deception and the boasting of those in power is somehow 
to the disadvantage of the most vulnerable. People are being taken advantage of. God says he'll come to their aid. And so this sort of prayer really lines up with how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, here's how you should pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so lament, lament is expressing grief to God that God's kingdom has not yet come. God, I look around and I see that your kingdom of peace and justice and truth and light is not fully displayed in our world. So I pray, God, that your kingdom would come. Because, God, in, in your kingdom, the needy and the vulnerable are protected. And truth and righteousness rule the day. This is why we, as the church, are people who care about truth and people who care about protecting the vulnerable. This is why we care for the needy. This is why we care about refugees and immigrants. This is why we care about the unborn. This is why we care about vulnerable families and those in poverty and kids in foster care. This is why we care about racism and abuse and human trafficking. Because God cares. And in his kingdom, there is peace, there is justice, there is equality and protection for all people. And so we pray. We pray that our land would more and more reflect God's heart, even if it seems far from it. We lament the lack of the kingdom we see displayed around us, and we pray that God's kingdom would come. Even if, as verse 8 says, our society, our world, honors things that are vile and empty even if it seems like people are running the opposite direction, what we lament, we cry out to God that things would change. You know, we do see in verse 6 where we can put our trust. You know, David's lamented there's, there's lies, there's deception, flattering lips, that who can we trust? No one's loyal anymore, no one's faithful, but verse 6 says, the words of the Lord are flawless like silver, purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times, seven in Scripture, being a number of perfection. So God's Word is perfect, it's pure, it's flawless. And so the contrast in the text is so clear. God, our land is filled with lies, deception, and sinful hearts, but your Word is flawless and pure. So when I can't trust anyone else, I can trust you. Your Word has promised that. Your word reflects who you are. It's a guide that is sure. Friends, that's why as a church we are committed to preaching and teaching and studying the word of God. It's been said before that the Bible is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. It's stood the test of time and attacks in all kinds of different ways and still God's word Remain. Civilizations come and go, but God's word remains. And so I ask you, do you know God's word? Do you make it a practice in your own life to, to read it, to study it, to apply it, to 
your heart to let it read you. To let God guide you and your life through his word. And friends, as a church, we're meant to do this together. Right? The word of God is pure and flawless. But sometimes our interpretations of God's word are incorrect. And so we need one another to help us see what is true in God's word, to understand it correctly. This is why we have small groups that go over the passage from Sunday so that we can talk about what we see in the text, apply it, learn from one another, keep each other accountable. And I am not the ultimate authority here in this church, the board or the other pastors, we are not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. And we see this displayed through his word. Scripture guides us. Scripture is our authority under God. And friends, there's, there's a word for uh, the theologian that's alone. The lone theologian, there's a word for them, and that word is the heretic. He's often on our own, it's so easy for us to be deceived and led astray and get all kinds of strange ideas in our minds. And so we need each other to study the Word of God in community, to come to the right conclusions and applications, or else we could go off in some pretty strange directions. But friends, this morning my ultimate hope here is, is not that you would trust in uh, this book, or that you would just trust in this book, but that you would encounter the one this book points you to. And that's Jesus. See, in lament, like Psalm 12 has shown us, we cry out that things are not as they're supposed to be. And the hope that we cling to as Christians, the hope that we cling to is Jesus. In two ways. First, we realize uh, the salvation that Jesus brings. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. He died in your place, bearing the punishment that you and I deserve so that he could forgive us of our sins, rescue us from sin and death, and cleanse us, change us, give us new hearts and his spirit within us so that we can live new lives, now and forever, in him. And so, friends, I encourage you, if, if you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, haven't turned from your sins and, and acknowledged that Jesus is Lord and your King, I invite you to do that today. Find eternal life in him. Find forgiveness of sins in him. Find salvation in him. And I get, hey, if you look out at the world and say, there are so many problems in the world, I want to go fix the world, I want to go uh, make sure that things are done differently in, in the future, great, angry about the problems out there, okay, I get it. But first, we all need to deal with the problems and the sin within our own hearts. So first we need to deal with the sin and the brokenness of our own lives and allow God to forgive us and change us and through the work of Jesus, renew us so that we can then join God in his mission of redeeming his world. And so we look to Christ, of course, for salvation. And would love to talk with you 
If you're interested in knowing more about following Jesus, please indicate that on your connection card. Fill out our form in the chat box. We'd love to follow up with you and help you take some next steps on that journey. So the connection card is a next step for you if you have not made that decision. But also we have in Christ the hope of the kingdom that is coming. The promise that Jesus will return, that Jesus will establish his kingdom fully, He will deal with all evil. Every evil leader and kingdom and oppressor and doer of injustice will be dealt with. Jesus will return to judge. Jesus will dwell with us forever. And so the darkness in our world will not Last. And so we have that hope. As we lament, as we cry out, we also have the hope of the gospel that Jesus our King will return. He will judge and condemn all evil. And he will lead us, his people, all who have trusted in him for salvation, into peace and justice and life with him forever. And friends, the good news of the gospel is that when Jesus returns, again, we are made right with him, not because of our own works or how much good we did or how uh, we earned salvation in the favor of God, we can never measure up. Our only hope is the grace of God shown in Jesus. And so that's our hope is that when Jesus returns and, and, and judges the world and deals with evil, it's not that we're going to be able to stand the judgment based on our own life of good works because we know we'll all fail by that measure. But instead we have hope and confidence that we are forgiven in Christ united to him. His righteousness is given to us, and so we stand in in the righteousness of Christ by him alone. And so, friends, with that as our hope and our future we look forward to, would you join me in prayer? Well, Father, we can relate in, in many ways to Psalm 12 in the cry of David, where we say, help Because it appears that all who are faithful and godly have have vanished. It appears that those in in leadership, those in our world, are are filled with, with lies and deception. Deceptive hearts. And Lord, we we grieve the fact that even our our own hearts are are twisted and need transformation. And so we pray for our nation. We pray for our president, our politicians, our leaders even our our cultural leaders, the voices in the academic world, in uh, church world that that shape and speak into uh, our day. God, we pray that your spirit would move and you would bring conviction, that you would bring an awareness of sin, uh, that you would humble us as a nation and as a world, that you would Bring people to yourself. Help us trust in you and then learn to live in your way. God, we want our land, our nation, and our world to be marked by peace and justice and righteousness and truth and be a reflection of your kingdom. And we see almost every day how far we have strayed. So Lord, would you come and help? Rise up, Lord, and defend those who are vulnerable. Use us, Lord. Stir our hearts to be people of truth, people of love and grace, 
who protect the vulnerable and care for those who are in need. Use us, Lord. And Jesus, I pray that you would just continue to be our hope, that our eyes would be set on you, that we would know that no uh, political agenda, no politician, no social movement or change is going to bring about what we most desperately need. It's only through you, Jesus. You alone can change our hearts, and you alone offer us eternal life and life in your kingdom. So we praise you and we thank you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, friends. Hey, would you join us as we sing one more song? We have the after party in the chat box. We'd love to see you face to face. And hey, if you're new, I encourage you, come back a couple times. Uh, sit with us for a couple different weeks so you can kind of get a feel for what things are like here. We'd love to see you uh, next week. Uh, and in the weeks ahead, especially in the fall, as we jump into our new sermon series. So we'll, we'll see you soon.